Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to Frank Sinatra. For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. Thus sangeth the chairman of the board. Sinatra sang these words, of course, many centuries after the time of Naaman, commander of the Syrian army, and Elisha, the prophet of God. The evidence suggests, however, that Naaman was a man who followed such a philosophy in life. Naaman, we are told, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor. But Naaman did not get everything his way. He was afflicted with a painful and inconvenient and unsightly disease known as leprosy. Even so, Naaman was a man of action. So when he heard through his wife's servant girl that there might be hope for him to be cured, Naaman jumped on the opportunity, just as he had so many times before made bold and effective decisions on the battlefield, decisions that had brought success to him, his army, his king, and his country. Naaman took this information about the prophet in Samaria to his king, who was all too happy to support his favored general. Now, whether something was lost in communication or that it was simply assumed that all prophets in Israel were beholden to the king there, the Syrian king agreed to help Naaman seek a cure by sending a letter of introduction along with him. So off went Naaman, bearing his king's letter, accompanied by an entourage equipped with horses and chariots and supplied with a large gift to seek the favor of the king of Israel. Upon his arrival in Israel, though, the letter didn't go over too well, to put it mildly. It seemed as though the king of Syria was putting the king of Israel into an impossible situation, possibly as a pretext for picking a fight between their two countries. The letter was asking that Naaman be cured of leprosy, and the burden of that request was being dropped right into the lap of the king of Israel. Imagine his consternation at such a request. Picture yourself with a a similar request from someone with whom you don't have the best of relationships, asking you to do something that is seemingly impossible. A request that you fix the national debt, for example. A request that you solve the drought in central Texas. A request that you eliminate traffic jams on Interstate 35. It's no wonder, then, that the king of Israel tore his clothes as a sign of his anger and his woe. He knew that he didn't have the capability of healing Naaman. He was being put into a no-win situation. He even acknowledges in his own words that such a task could only be accomplished by God, the Lord and Master of life itself. The word of the matter reached Elisha, who is described in the text as a man of God, Now, Elisha doesn't quite laugh out loud at the king's predicament, but his message to the king carries a heavy dose of 
nonchalance. What's the big deal, Elisha seems to say? This isn't anything to get all upset about. Send this Syrian general over to me and he'll learn that God is with us here in Israel. Now, if it weren't for the fact that we know from other biblical accounts that God has done great things through Elisha, the prophet's words might sound a bit arrogant to us. But they aren't words of pride. They're words of confidence and words of faith. Happy to be left off the hook, the king sends Naaman off to Elisha's house where he and his group are left waiting outside. Elisha doesn't even come to the door to to greet Naaman, a high-level dignitary of a foreign power, or to offer his directions for a cure. He sends a messenger instead with instructions for Naaman to wash in the Jordan River seven times to be healed of his leprosy, to have his flesh restored, and to be made clean. Now, I've read a lot of Bible commentaries about this episode, and Many of their authors spend a great deal of time explaining how Elisha didn't want to come out the door of himself because he didn't want to be exposed to this leper and be made ceremonially unclean under the law of Moses. Now I can understand and I can respect their reasoning for why Elisha remained inside, and it does make perfect and practical sense to me. But I think there's another more theological explanation, which I'll get to in just a bit. Regardless of the reason, though, Naaman takes notice of Elisha's behavior, and he also takes great offenses at what has happened and what he has been told. And so he storms off, full of anger and frustration. You see, the deeper issue for Nathan here at this moment is not that he hasn't gotten the cure for his leprosy that he so desperately wanted and hoped for. Rather, it's that his position and his accomplishments haven't been acknowledged and respected. His expectations haven't been met. His desires haven't been catered to. In other words, Naaman didn't get it my way. At the risk of using another Sinatra illusion, in other words, God's solution wasn't what Naaman was looking for. I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Naaman wanted Elisha to do what Naaman wanted, and to do it where, and to do it how, and with the words that Naaman wanted. He had his expectations so firmly fixed that he even complained about what river he was to wash in. My, my, how very much we can be like Naaman when it comes to the actions of God toward us. But a little bit more about that later on. Let's get back to the issue of Elisha not coming out of the house to meet Naaman. As I said, those scholars who say that Elisha didn't come out because he didn't want to be made unclean by being in the presence of Naaman the leopard, they they have valid arguments. According to the law, any Israelite who had been exposed to a leper had to go through a strict regimen of cleansing rituals in order to be restored to the fellowship of the community. But let's look for a gospel reason, not a law reason. Perhaps Elisha sent a messenger out to Naaman, not out of concern for himself, 
but out of concern for Naaman. If Elisha had done what Naaman expected with a dramatic wave of his hand and shouts to the Lord, Naaman might have been cleansed, but he might also have wrongly concluded that there was something in the actions of Elisha that accomplished his healing. But the way that Elisha communicated the cure to Naaman was not dramatic at all. He was merely to trust in the words that God had conveyed to him through his spokesperson, the prophet. That is, Naaman had to have faith that what was promised to him would indeed take place. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Naaman stomped off at first, rejecting Elisha's message because it wasn't dramatic enough for him. It didn't cater to his sensibilities. It didn't make him the center of attention at the climax of his healing. Fortunately for Naaman, his servants did not throw in the towel and stomp off back to Syria with him. Instead, they prevailed upon him to consider that Elisha's words, strange and unexpected though they might have been, could be powerful and effective. It is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? That is, maybe Naaman, you should consider that these simple words and actions that the prophet recommends are nevertheless powerful because they come from a man of God. What have you got to lose, dear general? You're already doomed to live out your life with leprosy anyway. You might as well give this simple solution a chance. In the end, Naaman finally bowed to trust and to try the Word of God. According to the Word of the man of God, the text says, and he was healed of his disease. <clears throat> so why should you, as sophisticated and accomplished as you are here in the 21st century, care about the story of a Syrian general who lived nearly 29 centuries ago? What possible connections could you have? What relevance is there to your life? Well, probably more than you realize and far more than you'd be willing to admit. Read through the text with an open mind and with honest reflection on yourself, and you just might find your inner Naaman. Though you might not command an army, I suspect that there are many times when you are considered a great man or woman by your master and in high favor. And that's because more often than not, your master is your own ego. We are all given to think way too highly of ourselves far too much of the time. We are also apt not to realize or acknowledge that all of our blessings and our successes in life, whether they be Naaman's victories as a commander or our little accomplishments in our conquest day by day, are all given to us by God. Nothing happens apart from His will. And while we might use our talents and our intellect and our energy toward achieving these things, these abilities all originate in God's gracious providence to us, what we consider His first article gifts of creation. Failing that realization and that acknowledgement, however, like Naaman, we fall into the habit of questioning and even rejecting what God has revealed to us through His prophets. We still want Him to do things our way. We want to experience the spectacular, the dramatic, the impressive. 
We often aren't satisfied with the simple and yet profound mysteries by which He has chosen to show Himself and give Himself to us. Most of all, though, we are all little Naamans because we suffer our whole lives with a debilitating disease. It might not be outwardly visible and as patently offensive to others as what his leprosy might have been, but it is far more harmful, more dangerous, and more deadly. Your body and your mind and your soul are rotted through and through with the disease of sin, and its foul, detestable stench might not be noticed by other mortals, but it has reached the nostrils of your God, and it is not an aroma pleasing to the Lord. What's worse, no matter how flowery and eloquent the letters you might bear from earthly authorities that tout your accomplishments and ask for action on your behalf, they will carry no weight before the King of heaven and earth. You can bring your talents of silver and all of your shekels of gold, but if they are given in order to secure favor or with the intent to buy what you want from the recipient, then they will all be worthless. You can stand outside the prophet's house for as long as you want, hoping for a change in your circumstances too. But in the end, only hearing the prophet's words and trusting in God's promises will avail you of relief. And you finally then have to ask yourself, what is it about the gracious words and promises of God that make me resist it so? Why do I think that they are too simple, too easy, too unspectacular? Why do I convince myself over and over that I don't really need His help and His comfort, His assurance day after day and week after week? The answer, of course, is that our doubts have been brought on by the same attributes and the same factors that have led to our disease predicament in the first place. We are sinful through and through. We'd rather fall victim to the temptations of the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. We'd rather attempt to be proud and mighty men and women of valor and notoriety than to humble ourselves and to surrender ourselves to God's simple solutions. But know this, no matter how many enemies you've slain or how many battles you've won, how high you've climbed in the hierarchy of your organization, or who thinks highly of you. No, no matter how much treasure you've accumulated, you can't cure yourself on account of your accomplishments. Yes, you can rage at the Lord and be angry with His prophets. You can complain all you want about wanting to have different solutions or having a better and more logical answer yourself. None of that really matters. The prophet has spoken to you the great word, and you should listen. Will you not do it? Will you not accept what the Lord has revealed to you? It's a simple matter, really. Wash not seven times in the Jordan, but one time in the font. For the words of Jesus are just that powerful. Repent of your sins. All of them. Not just the ones you wish you could get rid of while you keep the ones that you enjoy. Be forgiven. Take the simple answer in the simple meal. Bread and wine, body and blood, given for you, shed for your sins. But the Lord has not stayed safely in the house and sent word only through His messenger, though. God has come down from a heavenly throne, 
And he is infinitely more powerful than the king of Syria or the king of Israel. And he has set aside his honor and his favor to humble himself and to be counted among sinners. He is the mighty man of valor who has taken the rotten stench of your leprosy of sin into his very own flesh. And he has nailed it to the cross. In his death, you have found favor with the higher king. In his life and resurrection, you are joined to him by the death of your sinful flesh and your baptisms. Arise then from your love of the Abana and the Parfar. Leave the Damascus of death and the Syria of sin. Come instead to the Jordan, where your Savior has sanctified the waters for all time. Enter the new and the heavenly Jerusalem, where there is no darkness or disease, for Christ has made all things light and all things new. Join with all who have been baptized into the people of the new Israel, where God's prophets proclaim to you the forgiveness of your sins and the healing of your spirit. You have been made clean through the blood of Jesus, and not only has your flesh been restored, but your soul as well. It is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you indeed. In the name of Jesus, amen.